Recording live from the Hoban Law Group here in Denver, Colorado, I'm your host, Eric Singular. Welcome to the Hoban Minute. It's me and Bob Hoban on the Hoban Minute, and we are talking about the recent appointment to the Supreme Court. Uh, We've talked about it a little bit before, and we want to carry on that conversation because at that time, uh, it was just a recommendation. And now, today, which is October 28th, in anticipation of the election that's coming up next week, let's talk a little bit, Bob, about your interpretation from a legal perspective of what this new appointment of Amy Coney Barrett uh, to the Supreme Court really means. Getting a, away from the just political lens that we kind of see it portrayed in, uh, and let's talk about it from a legal perspective. Yeah, well, well uh, Eric, we have a we have a new Supreme Court justice. That's a fact. Uh, much to the dismay of, of a number of people, but I'm not exactly sure that that is, uh, that is founded on facts. Um, by all accounts, she uh, is and was to date a, uh, a good jurist. Her qualifications are um, very good. Um, I fail to see what the problem is when you take the politics off of it. There was nothing that required President Trump from not advancing the nomination. Yes, you've got the example of this, uh, the end of the Obama era uh, with Merrick Garland um, and uh, how that didn't advance because the Senate sets the schedule. So the Senate did not advance the schedule. Obama was termed out, so it's slightly different. But I failed to see the controversy when here's what we've got. We've got a woman that's about to be sworn in as a new Supreme Court justice by an African-American man, that being Judge Clarence, Justice Clarence Thomas. The system doesn't seem to be terribly broken if we're trying to talk about diversity and opportunity. But when you dig down underneath of it, it's not necessarily about, is it? Is it about supporting uh, people of color, such as Justice Thomas? Is it supo- supporting opportunities for women? Or is it about supporting opportunities for people that fit a certain profile that should, should, quote-unquote, think a certain way. And if they don't, we don't support them as society. That seems to be incongruous to me. Uh, It doesn't make sense. I understand the political divide. I understand it's heated right now. But just because someone was appointed by a particular political persuasion does not dictate that that person is going to simply validate. Trump could have put up a candidate for the uh, Supreme Court nomination that was a blind zealot that may have been qualified as a judge, but a blind zealot for conservative uh, rhetoric and conservative philosophy. Uh, He did not do that this time around. He put somebody up there um, to fill a, a monumental woman's shoes that seems to have the chops to support, and she said nothing controversial. People are reading things into it. But Look back in history a little bit, too. Most recent history. Think about Justice, uh, Justice Roberts, our Chief Justice, a Republican appointee. Roberts is not a Republican zealot, a conservative jurist on all issues. In fact, to the contrary, uh, Roberts was a vote that upheld uh, the vast majority of Obamacare. Roberts was part of a vote that recognized uh, homosexuals as a protected category, a protected class of citizens under our laws here in the United States. A Republican appointee did those things. 
Not because he said what's right or wrong, because he looked at things from a legal standpoint and applied the law as it was written. Look back in history. Jo- uh, President Reagan has appointed a number, had a, appointed a number, I believe four Supreme Court justices in his eight years. And Reagan, while you know many disagree with his policies, at least he was a statesman. Unfortunately, some of the, that, that statesman quality is, is missing in today's political landscape, but he appointed someone named Anthony Kennedy. Kennedy became uh, a a jurist who sided with Democrats almost as much, if not more, than he sided with so-called Republicans or conservatives on issues. And he was appointed by a Republican. Uh, The vilified, in certain circles, Ronald Reagan appointed him. Reagan also appointed Justice Rehnquist, who was our chief justice, who by all accounts was a good, solid jurist. My point being, just because someone appoints someone and they have a political persuasion does not mean that Roe versus Wade is going to be overturned tomorrow. There is a uh, analysis, there is a legal process, and these are really smart people with really high qualifications. That, by the way, is nothing that you heard out of these recent Supreme Court uh, nomination discussions was that uh, uh, Justice um, ACB, as she's known these days, that she was not qualified. That wasn't the discussion. And it's also you know, telling that the lines of inquiry were, how would you rule if this came up? How would you rule if this came up? Fair, I suppose, for uh, a nomination process for uh, certain political parties to ask questions about things they're concerned about. But she always uh, said that you have to be presented with facts. Nothing about her history would indicate that she's going to go in with a particular bent uh, so even the personal attacks seem to be very mild compared, certainly, to uh, what we saw around Justice Kavanaugh in the past. So I just don't think the system's broken. I don't see a tremendous issue. Uh, history will say that I'm right or wrong about this as this moves forward. Um, but I don't believe that this person is someone that we should be anything other than proud of, to have a solid, strong woman on a very diverse bench at the U.S. Supreme Court uh, who's earned the right to be there and I believe will serve justice and not serve politics. Hearing you talk about all of that, I kind of can't help but remember being in civics back in high school, being in uh, the classes where you would learn about the American political system, not really the political system, but how the country is run, the system of checks and balances. And when you really look at those uh, those three uh, branches of government, right, when you look at the executive branch, when you look at the legislative branch, I think the judicial branch is really one of the branch that the average American really does not understand. And we maybe, as average Americans, don't even really understand the executive and legislative, but we can wrap our heads around it a little bit more, and that's informed in some way by the deep political divide. And I, I kind of had this thought when you were talking uh, about these appointees who, it was a Republican appointee, but they ended up siding more with the Democrats over time. And, and it can't, it, it, I couldn't help but think, okay, this is the only position in the, in the government that is a lifetime appointment. 
And while there is certainly some some people out there who maybe disagree with that or think it shouldn't be a lifetime appointment, think about the fact that your senators and your president are constantly being scrutinized in the decisions decisions that they are making uh, because they know that they're going to be up for re-election every couple of years. Whereas if you're an appointee, if you're a Supreme Court justice, you change as a human being over time. Your views around certain issues change, and you're not living in that scrutiny that other uh, politicians really are, always thinking about what's going to happen in that next election. You're almost above all of it. A little bit, and it does almost create more opportunity for you to not be so pigeonholed uh, in a certain way. So I, I, I think it's fascinating to hear you speak on kind of the more from a legal perspective uh, and you know, the operating functions of government, and that I don't think it is broken. I think it's, it's really that we don't spend a lot of time. <laughs> and if you're watching you know, CNN, you're watching Fox, et cetera, they're not spending a lot of time really talking about the functions of government, the philosophy of government, the way that it was taught back in high school. And even though it's hard to remember that, is the system really broken? I think it's more complicated. There's a deep political divide, but the system itself is meant to serve certain functions. And I think to your point, it is serving those functions. And I don't know, I, I, I just think it's interesting that perhaps the lifetime appointment position actually gives people the freedom uh, in a weird way, in, in a highly politicized climate where, you know, Amy Coney Barrett is, is fairly young and she's probably not going to be exactly the same person 20 years from now when she's still holding that position in, in all likelihood. Uh, it's, just, it's just we live so much in the moment of the vitriol of, well, Trump did this. And, uh, well, you know, Bob, I guess the other thing to really talk about while we're here, um, this episode will likely be published uh, after <laughs> next Tuesday, Election Day. And uh, maybe some of our listeners will be tuning in to try to make sense of it all. Is there a margin if, uh, for Trump to lose in which he will not take some kind of legal action, if he will not call into question the results of the election in your mind? Let me put it this way. Um, is there a – the answer is no. <laughs> the answer is no. But I, I wouldn't paint it as a, as a Trump losing thing. I think – both th this is an unprecedented election we're doing it primarily by mail-in ballot because of the pandemic but that's also the way voting has gone i've voted every year uh, every election for gosh 10 years or more now here in colorado and every single time it's been a paper ballot i trust that process but it's my understanding that the the those ballots have traditionally been deemed sort of provisional kept on the side. We count how many there are. We might not count all of those votes until we determine, based on the people that go into the voting booths, whether there's a divide. If the spread is 3,000 votes and there's only 1,000 ballots sitting on the side, it doesn't make sense to count those 1,000 ballots. So uh, this is an unprecedented election for that purpose. My point being, it doesn't matter whether it's Donald Trump that, that is presumed to lose on election day, uh, be, and, I'll, and I'll get into what I mean by presumed to lose, or, or uh, uh, Mr. Biden, both of them are sitting back with high-paid lawyers, really smart people, evaluating every single way to attack this election if, in fact, 
um, there's some discrepancies. And there's some discrepancies that we'll talk about that even as a non-constitutional or election law lawyer, I can look at and go, there's a pretty good cause of action there, at least it would seem. So I don't think there's a number for Trump. I do think that there's potentially a number for Biden if he were to lose. I don't think Biden would contest for the sake of contesting. But this is compounded by several factors. What is the appropriate amount of time post-election day that we can count, that we will leave to count the ballots? Because some states require the ballot to be in a ballot box by election day, counted that evening, or mailed in in advance. Some states require merely a postmark by election day, which means mail will come in the door post-election day. Will that be a significant enough balance, uh, number of ballots to potentially close that gap? We shall see. But that alone, that seems to create a legal course of action. There's actually been some, some legal uh, proceedings on that particular issue in different states. Um, there's been a lot of election activity to date already. You just don't know about it unless you're following very closely state by state where the Republican National Committee and the Democratic National Committee will hire lawyers and the Trump administration will use the Department of Justice lawyers to advance these issues. It's already happening. So the groundwork is set on so many different potential causes of action post-election day. Think about this one too. Um, the notion that in some states... The ballot that you vote on, that you sign, pardon me, that you fill out, goes in an envelope. It goes in an envelope in every state. But sometimes, in some states, you sign the ballot. In some states, you sign the envelope. So what happens when I bring that in? I'm a 100% neutral, objective election employee or clerk and recorder employee opening that ballot, and I'm going to count it and I'm going to put the envelope over here, and I'm going to put the ballot over here. The signature just was separated from the ballot. The signature is on an envelope. So how can I validate the integrity of that ballot when the signature is not on the ballot? That's a Nevada issue. My point is there are so many potential issues. Now, this is where the our prior discussion comes into play. The ultimate arbiter of... Let's just put an end to this already or count them again and let's use those numbers and be done with it, for lack of a better way to put it, would be our U.S. Supreme Court. That's what happened in Bush versus Gore in 2001. It's enough already. We've counted and recounted and counted. Um, this is the outcome. Enough. The country can't be in limbo for this long. We're not going to drag this on for months and months and months. That was one or less than a handful of very discrete issues specifically around Florida. Now... These are going to be in multiple states, on multiple levels. So I'm not optimistic that we're going to have certainty or clarity uh, even within a couple of weeks of Election Day. I'm hopeful that we do. I'm hopeful that, you know, based on the numbers and the projections based on those numbers of ballots that are in and that come in on Election Day and within a couple of days after um, can paint an accurate picture where one side would be I don't even know if this is the right word considering it's politics, is gracious applicable to politics? Will one of the, the candidates be gracious enough to concede the election? Another interesting story, going back in history. 1960, President uh, Nixon ran against President, uh, uh, pardon me, Nixon, who ultimately became president in the 70s, ran, uh, late 60s, early 70s, 
ran against John F. Kennedy. John F. Kennedy won the election. If you read history, there were a lot of inconsistencies about that election, and it was close enough that Richard Nixon could have availed himself of the courts and enacted a process. And I talk about Nixon because many people vilify Nixon this, or Trump the same way they vilify Nixon. Two of the just the most hated presidents in history because they just seemingly were not were and are not good people. Um, and that's not what we want as leaders in this country. So Nixon came out. Nixon had pride. Nixon had all the reason in the world to fight. This was before he ultimately won. And by the way, Nixon ran for president multiple times. He ran for Senate multiple times. And, th- and then he ultimately became president. He was a fixture um, in the Republican Party. And he said, I concede. You're right. You won the election. Congratulations, Mr. President. And then he attended the inauguration. Another historical point I'll bring up. And then enough of that is, let's go back to the year 1801, Eric. What happened in 1801? You, as you astutely pointed out earlier, 219 years ago. In 1801, Thomas Jefferson was sworn in as our third United States president. Thomas Jefferson, who we look at and say, oh, he was a, a founder. He was a great writer. He wrote you know, these, these core documents in American history. And then John Adams. Oh, you've seen John Adams. He was our second president. These guys hated each other. Talk about dirty, mud-throwing, political, uh, just awful politicking and campaigning that came down to an election where Jefferson won. He beat our second president, John, John Adams. Adams left Washington, D.C. This is a fact. In the middle of the night because he refused to attend Thomas Jefferson's inauguration the next day. He refused to do it. He hated him so much. It was such a dirty campaign. Only time in U.S. history that's ever occurred. If, and I say if because let's not presume anything and let's be open-minded here. If our current president, Donald J. Trump, loses the election, whether that's through a court process or otherwise, what's your bet? Will he attend Joe Biden's inauguration? It's easy to feel like our moment in history is the moment in history. Uh, And it, it isn't entirely true. And I think you raised a point earlier. You raised it actually with Erica, and you raised it at the beginning of this conversation, which is there's progress. There is an enormous amount of progress in our country. Uh, When we really look at history and we really look at the amount of time in which great changes have occurred that have opened up opportunities for people of color, that have opened up opportunities for women to raise to high levels of, uh, of government, to enter into positions of power. We really have come a long way in a pretty short amount of time. And this election, while it definitely uh, it illustrates a lot of the lesser, the things we don't really like to confront about our country, it also is a moment for kind of this reflection and this moment to kind of understand and, and maybe not take for granted so much that we do live in a country of laws at the end of the day, uh, which are there and do serve to make sure that nothing uh, nothing happens that isn't without a structure around it. Because when you do look around the planet, and I think Bob is someone who, who navigates the global cannabis industry and even the conversation we had uh, 
on the Mexico webinar that we did today, you know, there was a question that popped up in the in the Q&A that was like, yeah, you guys are talking about all these opportunities for hemp in Mexico, but the cartel operates a lot of these areas that you're talking about where hemp farming may be a really big thing. I mean, that's not an issue that we think about here in the United States when you're talking about things. Oh, well, the cartel runs uh, the northwestern part of the United States, so it's a little complicated to talk about cannabis legalization there. You know, this uh, the country of laws that we live in, does it, does it give you any hope that we will make it through the next couple of months here? Uh, kind of as we did in 2000, you know, when, when you said there's, there's some parallels to be drawn there. I think it feels the way you described, and I agree, it feels that way, and it's, all, it's, it's pretty intense with a lot of people. It, it feels that way because of the media and because of social media. What I mean by that is just they cover everything, okay? I'm not saying one's right or one's wrong. I'm not saying fake news. I'm saying they cover everything. So everything is being covered. I would suggest very strongly that politics was dirtier, more underhanded, even more... Uh, disgusting, because I think a lot of what we've seen these days is disgusting, than it is today, because nobody was covering it back then. You didn't know anything unless you read it in a newspaper, or you heard it. You, you, you couldn't get on the internet and see a video of what that person said on a campaign trail. It was reported, oftentimes days, weeks, months later, what occurred in these early elections in U.S. history. Um, and there's lots of examples of just how nasty it is. Another reason I think the media, uh, the media takes all kinds, meaning there's media for everybody. You go out and get the kind of media attention that you want. The people that go to Fox News, they want to see that narrative. The people that go to CNN, they want to see that narrative. The MSNBC, it's equally bad on both sides. I'm not suggesting one's worse than the other, although you know it's been suggested that. And they're invested. The media is invested in an outcome, or so it seems. The news is not the news, it's opinion. And the, the, the opinion is based on a set of facts that are reported loosely and then elaborated on. So it does the media good to be correct. So they're invested. I'm not saying invested in the sense that they really want to see one side win or lose. I think that's probably true. But it's invested as a matter of their jobs. Their jobs is to make opinion. And the opinion, if it's right, will attract more listeners, more eyeballs, more viewers, whatever the case might be. So that's what I think we see. Quick thing on the cartel point you raise. Something that we've seen, the closest thing we see to that is the California traditional or illicit market in the marijuana trade. And cartel-like in the sense that it has uh, always been a you know, criminal enterprise, very well organized distribution that expands beyond California's borders. Um, and certainly there's, there's a, a limited history uh, of violence and, and things attached to it. Not on you know, global or, or Latin American cartel level, but any stretch of the imagination. But it is a valid point. But what I've seen is I've seen policies enacted in different Latin American countries where certain parts of the industry were carved out. Not said, this is the part we're going to regulate and let the cartel run. It's never said that way. But it's done where there's an absence of regulation of a particular thing. I use Colombia as an example. Colombia can export cannabis, but it cannot export cannabis flowers. 
Are cannabis flowers still being exported from Colombia? You bet. Who controls that? That doesn't happen through a regulated commercial marketplace. Look at different ways to regulate an industry such that it provides opportunities for um, criminal enterprise to try to participate in a way that's outside of the regulations, but the regulations are narrow in scope. There are ways to write public policy to take care of as many different factions or stakeholders or interest holders as possible. And the reality is, in those countries, as you mentioned, Mexico, cartels are stakeholders. They are relevant parties. You're not just going to the Better Business Bureau and saying, hey, how do we regulate cannabis? And this is what we're going to do. So those folks are engaged in the process. Um, and it does present a problem. And only time will tell how it shakes out. But how we've seen it shake out in California, not apples and apples comparison, is we've seen those folks try to participate on both sides. Then having to make a hardline decision when the regulated side became more difficult, more complex, more, more uh, intricate to comply with. Um, and they'd have to pick a side and or relocate or and or go under a different model. Um, it eliminates the violence. Uh, it's a situation that's happening in real time in California that doesn't get talked about, doesn't get reported about. But just like the fact that, you know, there is narco trade uh, around the cannabis plate, play, uh, plant in jurisdictions that have a commercial regulated market, and it exists outside of that. This is just a fact of life. Um, one last thing I wanted to cover, uh, and maybe you were going to bring this up. What happened in Europe this week? Pretty significant. Over a seemingly insignificant uh, quantity, uh, for lack of a better way to put it. The European Union determined this week that industrial hemp will be allowed at 0.3%, the very conservative and still arbitrary U.S. definition of THC content uh, by dry weight in plant material. It's historically been 0.2, not because industrial hemp itself has been 0.2, but the genetics were determined as a whole across the European Union to be allowed to be no longer uh, more than 0.2. Guess who had their hand in that? The French. The French, the leading hemp producer in Europe, went to the European Union at a time where they had a lot of influence in politics. Talk about politics and, and lobbying and trying to advocate for your way. And they said, you know what? It would be better. It would be more restrictive. It'll be easier to control if 0.2% THC was the standard. And oh, by the way, we've got a bunch of 0.2 varieties that we can get certified and run through this process that will meet your definition just beautifully. That prevailed. That took the day. Now, what's the upshot of increasing the THC percentage from 0.2 to 0.3? Ultimately, it does afford more market creativity considering many of the U.S. Uh, varieties that are 0.3 or below have uh, higher presence of cannabinoids, et cetera, so it creates more cannabinoid commerce. But it also, I would say, unlocks uh, seeds that might be higher than 0.2% that are sitting in seed banks and vaults in Eastern Bloc countries and uh, all across Europe. That's really exciting. There's varieties in there that we don't even know what they can do and what they're capable of yet, which further solidifies the fact that we are in the early, early, early infancy of this global industry, even though it's been around for God knows how long, and it's been an industry for so long, 
um, we're just at the tip of, of, of where that's going. Well, and there's a there's a interesting counter, not counterpoint counterpart to the opening of uh, those European genetics or just genetics that are sitting in seed banks, which is as you have these conversations uh, with folks in Mexico, as these countries that are closer to the equator are starting to get much more interested in the opportunities surrounding cannabis, surrounding industrial hemp and marijuana, we are going to need to develop uh, genetics that are more suited for those climates. And entering more genetics into that pool, entering more genotypes and phenotypes, and I don't know how scientific and nerdy you want to get with it, but that's one of the huge questions that we see come up uh, when we when we do these webinars and when you talk to people who are either in Latin America, maybe they're in Africa, maybe they're in Southern Europe, and they are all looking for what is the variety that's going to perform <laughs> very well when you're talking about equal day length. So something to just think about is we do need, we need more genetics, we need more research, we need time, and we need increased interest. And I see that as you know, only opening more possibilities, of course, for Europe, but even beyond Europe, I think that there's a lot, a lot there. I do want to come back to you know, some of the comments you made about the media because you know, we are a podcast and we are, to some degree, would fall under that definition of media. And I do think that even watching uh, the presidential debates that occurred this year, there really is something about it. You know, you say politics used to be a lot more underhanded, and I, I absolutely agree with you. And putting everything under the magnifying glass that is uh, the 24-hour news cycle, social media, where, where everything is just constantly reported on, and, and uh, you can choose what narrative, what perspective you want to consume that information from. Um, I see the, the presidential debates where there's just this absolute lack of ability for the candidates to have a civic discourse, to have an actual discourse about policy, an actual discourse about what the it, heck they just are supposed they to just argue about things that were reported in the news. It, it really is astonishing. And I mean, I mean this as somebody who you know, cares. It's like, you watch these guys get up there for an hour and a half and the the shallowness of it, high production quality. And that's what it is. It's a spectacle. It's a production. You know, I think what, what is so enjoyable about sitting here and having these conversations with you, Bob, is that we are trying to engage in an actual discourse, cutting beyond a little bit of just the, uh, the knee-jerk reaction to, oh, I think this is a bad Supreme Court justice and, and, uh, appointment. I think this issue is, is it, there's so much more to talk about, and it really is. It, it's, it's a little, uh, it's challenging to think about how as a country we're going to demand as consumers, because at the end of the day, whether we want to admit it or not, it's what we become, even from a political perspective. We really are, are we voters? Are we really... Uh, you know, making our voice heard, or are we treated more as consumers? And the political landscape and the political media and everything that is behind that is looking at the American populace as consumers. You're consuming the news, you're consuming information, you're doing it from the place that's more comfortable for you. What will it take to uh, to demand a more, uh, a m uh, just a more complicated, deep, conversation something that you know 
apparently, when you look at history, is what the uh, the old European countries uh, and the early days of America, something that was very, uh, it was much more important for people to really bring this. You know, you used to use the word statesman. Uh, yeah, I just, I don't know. I know we try to do a little bit of it here on the Hoban Minute. Hopefully we're successful to some degree in that. But it is something that just as, a, as an observer uh, in America in 2020, you know, just wanting a little bit more out of the people uh, who are elevated and in positions of power, just to just talk, just talk about things from a, a, a deeper perspective. So always a pleasure to sit here and do it with you, Bob. And, uh, you know, we'll hang it up and see what tomorrow brings because when this podcast is released uh, on uh, Wednesday, November 4th, could be a new day. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hoban Minute. Do you have any ideas for episode topics or guests? We would like to hear from you. Reach out to us at media at hoban.law and stay tuned for more on the Hoban Minute.